Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Join Hoda Kotfi for a brand new season of her podcast, Making Space. For season five, I am making space to talk to people who are providing a sense of hope and inspiration when life changes course. Uplifting conversations with inspiring individuals like NFL legend Drew Brees, singer-songwriter Ziggy Marley, and today's show co-anchor Savannah Guthrie as you have never heard her before. I found faith more viscerally, not because the bad thing didn't happen, but because it did. I promise you, like me, will leave these conversations with some wisdom for your own journey, empowered and inspired to make space in your own life. New episodes of Making Space with Hoda Kotb are released every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Zivi Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. And speaking of books, I have two of my own books coming out this spring and summer. Princess Charming is a picture book, which debuts on April 19th, and Bookends, a memoir of love, loss, and literature comes out on July 1st, and it is truly a labor of love. I hope you'll pre-order, order, and join me on tour as I go across the country. You can find out more at zibbyowens.com or bookendsmemoir.com. And you can follow me on Instagram at zibbyowens because I always post about everything. Enjoy the show. Jean Hanf Corlitz is the author of The Latecomer, a novel she is also the New York Times bestselling author of the novels The Plot, which was the 2021 Tonight Show Summer Reads pick, You Should Have Known, which was adapted for HBO as The Undoing by David E. Kelly and starred Nicole Kidman, Hugh Grant, and Donald Sutherland, Admission, which was adapted as the 2013 film starring Tina Fey, The Devil and Webster, The White Rose, The Sabbath Day River, and A Jury of Her Peers. Her company, Book the Writer, hosts pop-up book groups in person in New York and online where small groups of readers can discuss new books with their authors. Welcome, Jean. Thank you for coming back on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss your latest book, The Latecomer. Oh my gosh, I have that same book on my shelf right here. That's so crazy. How do, I wonder how that even happened. It's amazing. Maybe it's a weird like, computer advanced computer thing. It's a nice cover though, isn't it? I love the cover. I love it. I love it. And now that you have read the book, you understand what the cover means, that it's... Are these test tubes? Those are test tubes, right? Oh my gosh, so cool. We have three somewhat mature, I don't know how emotionally mature they are, flowers. And then we have a little latecomer poking her head up there and they represent the triplets in the novel and their sibling born 18 years later after 18 years of... uh, undignified freezing in a strip mall in <laughs> Oh my gosh. Tragic touch for any New Yorker to be. Wow. To have to cool your heels, very cool your heels in a strip mall in Connecticut. Yeah. Don't you wonder, is she always cold? He always cold, whatever, I you know? I think about that all the time. Like, right. did, 
if you have been in deep freeze for many, many years and you are then are born, are you always cold? Yeah. Do you feel cold all the time? It was one of maybe one of the very few things I never got around to uh, addressing. <laughs> well, it is not easy to follow up the plot with anything because the plot not only was like totally genius and awesome, but got the acclaim it deserved, which doesn't always happen, but it did. And so what a blessing. It's amazing. It was unexpected and life altering and very, very sweet because remember this was 25 years into a writing career and book number seven. And that is not counting the books that did not get published. So it felt different from the get-go and it was different. And I'm still just so, every time somebody comes up to me and says, I read the plot, I want to say, okay, who, who is it that you know in my life who, who gave you this book? It wasn't mom. <laughs> <laughs> was it my editor? Was it my agent? Was it my friends? No, they're total strangers. And they, they read the book and it's just wonderful. Oh my gosh. How is it life-changing? Like, how did it change your life? I, I mean, you might imagine, I might imagine that a writer of, of seven novels, two of which had been made into film or television things, might wait you are downplaying that a lot they were not just film or television things okay. explain what they were in case people well know. admission i'm sitting next to all my books here admission was made into this which was a very very sweet film she's holding was, it, it up with uh paul rudd and tina fey admission they played the protagonist who is a, a princeton admissions officer and the other one was this little ditty. Sorry, I'm trying to get the light on. The, the Undoing, the yeah. HBO yeah. show with um, Nicole Kidman that was all the rage. What was it, two years ago, it last was. year? Although, I mean, I think if you were doing a Venn diagram of you should have known the novel that I wrote and The Undoing, there would be a modest overlap in <laughs> whatever. But you would think that with those great experiences that my work would have been if not widely known, then you know, narrowly known, but it 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 that really wasn't the case. And I was I have been extremely fortunate to have a wonderful editor and a wonderful agent who really have stood on either side of me and propped me up for many books and believed in me. And I think it's it's been a, a wonderful experience for all three of us to have this this happen. But it just everything felt different with this book. It was being extremely well published. It was being enjoyed. It was being talked about. And it's just kind of continued to percolate along for an entire year now. And here we are coming up to the paperback publication in just a few weeks. And I, I feel like the book is still selling. So it's it's been a wonderful experience. And the late show recognition. I mean, that well, was... That was that was just a cherry on, on <laughs> Sunday. I mean, just being... It was an honor just to be nominated. It was one of six books who that were finalists for the Jimmy Fallon Summer Reads thing. And when I saw the other five books, I thought, okay, honor just to be nominated. They are great books. You know, most of them I'd read and admired, you know, crying in H Mart and and gosh, the other oh, oh, uh, uh the final revival of Open One Nev, wonderful book. And I were I really wasn't expecting to win. And I got a call from my editor. I was on vacation on an island in Lake Michigan that I'd always wanted to visit. And I just couldn't, the whole thing was just completely surreal. And then 
what you saw or perhaps didn't see on the late show was me not eating for four days because I was so nervous. But the plus was I could fit into my best skirt. So <laughs> it all worked out well. And after it was over, I I think I went immediately for the cookies in the green room and just like <sighs> stuff. <them. laughs> it's quite a visceral experience. Wow. So that's why I was even more surprised when the latecomer showed up so quickly after the plot and not like something you just whipped out overnight. Like No, no. Oh, no, so, no, no. So did you write this before? Like, tell me what happened. Right. So, well, the latecomer and the plot are are, are so, such different novels, mm-hmm. very different novels. In fact, they they probably represent the two opposite poles of my writing life, the the more kind of thriller, plot-driven, plot-driven, and the more Uh kind of contemplative, literary, observant novel. And yet in my brain, they're completely enmeshed because I wrote and rewrote The Latecomer before the pandemic. And it, it was not where it needed to be. And I wasn't sure why. I just kept banging my head against the wall and trying to figure out what the problem was, what the solution was. And it was during a meeting with my editor in which she was explaining to me why she wasn't ready to buy the book again, that I told her this other idea that I had, which was about a kind of washed up novelist who's teaching in some horrible kind of low residency MFA program. And he has this terrible student who has a brilliant idea. And then the student dies, leaving the idea unclaimed. And she got very excited about this idea. And she said to me, put down this book that you are struggling with. Just walk away for a little while. And why don't you write this other thing? When the pandemic began, that is just what I did. I I wrote the plot in four months, which is stupid. And I do not recommend that to anybody. In fact, I don't recommend that you read a novel written in four months because it's probably not going to be very good. (laughs) But everything just came pouring out with the plot, quite, again, quite the opposite of what I was dealing with with this novel. And after it was finished, a few months later, I picked up the manuscript and the skies opened up. I could see it. I could see what the problem was. I could see what the solution to the problem was. And then I, I did have to rewrite it a few more times but it was that change of focus and that break and maybe the palate cleanser of a world altering global event, who knows, that allowed me to see it again. And once I saw it, I could write the story that I wanted to write. So, and then it hit, ironically, it became the latecomer. You know, it, it took this book so long that it was almost like being this last child in this family that I'm writing about, the child that kind of comes out finally and and has to evaluate, you know, who she is and who these people in her family are and what she's going to do about them. So, I mean, it was a case of the book kind of becoming itself. Wow. I love the idea of the pandemic being just a palate cleanser. Um, (laughs) If only, you know, if only. with With heavy irony, you know, you're, you're, I was at one of your salons literally that week and, mm-hmm. and I was super scared and I know you were because we talked about this yeah. and, you know, here we are still on Zoom, although my building here on the Upper West Side has gone to mask optional. So let's hope that's a, that's a tick in the right direction. 
Well, you should have actually just come here. That's I, I almost suggested it. I wish you had done that. That would have been so much better. Oh, okay. Well, next time. Next time. Next time. <laughs> we ever write another book. I think I need to take a little break now. <laughs> okay. So let's talk about the latecomer, which okay. I like immediately got invested. Like there are some books where it takes a little while to get into it, right? But from the way you write and the way you develop these characters, immediately I'm like, I am in. I want to know what happens. I want to know every little thing. And you have so many details. I mean, I love like the New York angle and the sun, at, you know, going to collegiate and like all these little references and the ham. You know, I just love all these like, you know, insidery New York, not so insidery, but you know, how, how you depicted this world and that we all got to come right in and and then the way that you developed the the so the, the the novel starts there's a horrible thing that happens and it yeah. spins off for the rest of the book and I'll let you describe like the overall plot but because of this event you are immediately hooked but it's the writing and it's it's the way each character and you just keep wanting to see this one character crack right you just keep waiting sort of like his the woman he ends up with, like, what's going to happen? What, like, right. what happens when you're involved in something that's so horrible and then right. life still has to unspool for you? Right, right. Well, I, you know, because this appears literally in the first lines of the book, I think it's okay to share. Okay, okay. I never know what to say and what not to say when it's... Right, no, they're, they're, even though I don't think anybody who reads The Latecomer would call it a thriller, there are plenty of plot twists in this book. I love a good plot twist. I may be... I think of myself as a literary writer, but I have deep, deep appreciation for plot. I wrote a book called The Plot. It's it's very hardwired into me. The foundational event of this family, they're the Oppenheimers of Brooklyn. They're a very wealthy New York Jewish family. They're also descended from a, a real person, Joseph Oppenheimer, who was who was manipulated, whose story was manipulated by Goebbels and the Third Reich, as a character he named Yud Zeus and made a propaganda film about. Um, in real life, Yud Zeus, who was an 18th century Jewish martyr in, in Germany, uh, did not have any descendants, but this family are descended from him because it's fiction and we can do what we want. This character, his name is Salo Oppenheimer, is involved in a terrible car accident in which he is driving a car. He's driving a Jeep and the Jeep flips over and kills two of the people in the car. One is his girlfriend and possible future fiance. And the other is a fraternity friend. And then there is one more person uh, in the car who he's just met. So it doesn't, uh, doesn't occupy a lot of his psychic space. That person survives. He survives. So at the beginning of the novel, you know, we find him at, at the funeral of his girlfriend and one of the mourners is a woman who is going to be his future wife, is going to marry him and going to sort of devote her life to making it up to him. This horrible thing that he did, the, the, this guilt that he's frozen inside. And she can't do it because nobody can do it. Or to be more accurate, there's only one person who can forgive Sallow Oppenheimer and he has yet to encounter that person. So what Joanna, his wife, is trying to do is create such a beautiful and happy family for him that he can be forgiven. He can forgive himself. And to that end, she produces triplets, in vitro triplets. And um, there is one leftover embryo who is randomly dispatched to that strip mall in Connecticut to 
linger in cryogenic suspension for forever, you know, because they don't think they need that embryo because they're not expecting this incredible fecundity of these triplets. And then they just kind of keep paying the maintenance fees. So they have these triplets and these triplets hate one another. They hate one another since the Petri dish, basically. And are the only thing that they have in common is that they're trying to get away from one another. So this magical, happy family that Johanna is trying so desperately to create is just off the rails from the beginning. And the family makes an unfathomable decision just as the triplets are about to leave home for college, and that is to have this fourth child by surrogate. And we who are parents <laughs> might ask ourselves, why would anyone do that? <laughs> and, you know, you, you have three kids. They, they haven't, you know, robbed a post office. They're graduating from high school. They're going to college. They're out and they're okay why would you start over with an infant at that moment? And that is the question that we answer. Well, that's one of the questions that we answer in this book. You know, the 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 what the why questions are the ones that get us going as as novelists. Why would you do that? I mean, can you imagine <laughs> doing that? When you let's say the last of your four kids is about, bye, honey, have a great time at college. Oh, I know. Let's have a baby. No, you would not do that. I mean, I'm going to be like in the AARP by the time that happens, basically. <laughs> well, so is this family. <laughs> so yeah, that is one of many questions that, that pushes this narrative along. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, grown-ups. The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishful podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the cat in the hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. So sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. But the biggest question is what is wrong with this family and 
what has to happen for this family to reach some kind of detente. And that becomes the problem of the latecomer, of this final child. And I feel like I have already said too much and I've kind of... (laughs) You haven't ruined anything. No, no, no. I just think in my head. No, no, you did not ruin anything. Um, Not in the slightest. I was also, I was really interested in the way that you wove in art and the Saitwamli that he, Salo, Salo, Salo? Salo Oppenheimer, yes. Salo. Salo sees in this random, you know, it has this very physical, emotional response to and just, you know. It's the only thing that seems to elicit any emotion out of him at, from anything that he experiences. And then he, he, I love the image of like the Twomley just like on the floor in this Third Avenue one right. bedroom apartment. With a, it's so you know, true. I mean, trying to well, hang it on one hook on the wall and it falling off. And I'm like literally cringing like, oh my God. It's a $70 million painting. Be careful with it. You don't just bang it. Yes. Well, I'm I'm extremely fortunate. I, I'm not all that knowledgeable about art, but I have a good friend named Steve Martin who is. And I went out like to lunch with him and I said- The Steve Martin or just another man? The Steve Martin. Okay. And who is an incredible collector of art and very knowledgeable about art. And we together created Sallow Oppenheimer's fantasy art collection. Sallow begins to collect art in the 1970s. He is moved only by his emotional response to specific pieces. He's He doesn't care about money. He has money. He doesn't care about the prospects of a particular artist becoming valuable. He doesn't care about any of that. He cares about the solace that these paintings offer to him, beginning with the Twomley, which he actually faints in front of when he sees it in a museum. And this is an actually, this is a thing. This is an existing thing. It's called the Stendhal syndrome, in which uh, usually tourists faint before great art. <laughs> it's the kind of thing you just, you read about and you think, one day I'm going to put that in a novel. But he keeps his passion for his art collection completely separate from his family. All of the love and passion and care that should be going into the family that his wife has gone to such effort to create for him is going into this. It's not exactly a secret collection, but it's a private collection. And he houses it in a a warehouse in Red Hook in Brooklyn. So most of the art that he he collects is um, art that would not become valuable for some time. He's incredibly prescient. And if he were collecting for money, he's done very, very well. And I like that you don't even have the artists. Like I happen to know I love art history and I, you know, I've taken it, but I'm like, okay, so these two gray splotches, this is a Rothko, right? But you never say that like, oh, he just happens to buy a Rothko at this particular time or, you know, yeah, it's a lot of fun with that. I yeah, I bet. <laughs> I mean, later, one of his children gives us more of a specific tour of the collection. So we kind of get the breadth of what he accomplished. But this was actually, you know, when you're a novelist, ideas come from all sorts of places and you don't use them right away. Sometimes they linger in your head for a long time. And many years ago, I was watching television in a in a London hotel room. And I was watching an episode of the British version of Antiques Roadshow. And there was the most extraordinary story unfolding on this episode. And it had to do with a man who had died and his son and his what and his widow were had brought this collection of silver 
to the Antiques Roadshow. And every time the host or the appraiser pulled an object out of this bag, he freaked out more and more. This is the most rare. This is most, I've only seen this once before in the museum, the Tate, whatever, not the Tate, the, the British Museum. And you would think that the family members would be kind of happy and wow, we're gonna have an inheritance. They were more and more visibly distressed with every object that came out of this bag because it was clear to them and to the host and to us that this man's love and passion and care and delight had all gone to this collection and not at all to his family. The family didn't even know about the collection. They maybe knew that dad went to a museum on the weekend or he went to a trade show or he went to an antique show or something. But this, they had no idea. And it was the most fascinating family dynamic. And years later, you know, I went to that memory for this man and his art. The idea that he's assembling a world-class collection of 20th century painters in a, in a warehouse in Red Hook <laughs> while his, his family languishes without his attention is just, you know, unbearable, really. So that's where that came from. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So I, I just, inspiration comes in all sorts of places. Right? It does. It does. And you don't, you know, if anything, you would see a story like that and say, I'm going to make that the centerpiece of a novel one day. But, but in fact, this isn't the centerpiece. This is just one yeah. element of this very, very, you know, th this story has so many pieces. This is just one piece. Wow. And the fertility journey also, I mean, I was actually really interested because this dovetailed to me more with what happens these days, right? Or this in the last, I don't know, 20 years or something. But this happened a while ago. And I was wondering, yeah, I wasn't, and, and, go ahead. I, there is a, for, for people who know their for assisted fertility history, the dates are a little off. I'm off by about three years. My fictional fertility journey jumps the the factual gun by a couple of years, but certainly by the time by the time you and I were having our kids, this was more of a of a, of a story that we were hearing a lot. I think um, the more common story is you produce these eggs, you have one. A few years later, you have another. But this was a case where she's not expected to have a successful pregnancy of of one child, let alone three. It just after many failures, it just works. So because one is superstitious about these things, you you do, you keep paying the the maintenance fees. I mean, I, I every year I write a check for my 22-year-old son's umbilical cord blood. I, I have that too. I'm like, yeah. what on earth? Why am I doing, like, I don't even know what if I can find that receipt, honestly. It's like to the wrong email. Like, I know it's out there somewhere. Yeah. Do people even yeah. still talk about that? That was like such a big deal before cord blood banking. Well, yeah, but you know, there's a superstition about it. You know, there, there's a Greek myth about a, a baby who's born and the mother hears some supernatural creatures say, it's too bad that when that log is finished burning up, that baby is going to die. So she snatches the log out of the fire and saves it until many years later, she's really mad at him. <laughs> For something and she throws it back on the fire and he dies. Oh my gosh. It's true. I love that story. So, <laughs> yeah. You never you never know where the ideas are gonna come from. Wow. 
I also feel like there's a lot of, you know, Johanna is very like ashamed of her family in relationship to this other family. And you have this one scene where she, I think they like ran to his family's apartment to grab something or something. And she's like wandering around looking at mayonnaise and, you know, <laughs> she's it's like, dawning oh. on her what she's gotten herself into basically. Yeah. And that sort of you know, culture shock, if you will, or just like yeah. this whole new world that has opened up for her that she doesn't even really quite know how to deal with, which I feel like many people, not in this particular way with, you know, grandmaster art and all of the rest, but many people find themselves in a, in a new family situation with the person they're marrying and they're like, okay, this is a whole new world. How do I navigate this? Which is well, interesting. Uh, Joanna's from New Jersey and her father is the accountant at the Lawrenceville School. So she is used to one version of American prosperity. And that is, uh, that is not what she's looking at in mm-hmm. her fiance. So by the time she kind of figures it all out, you know, it's a moot issue because apart from these paintings, which aren't costing a lot of money in the seventies and eighties, they're, you know, they're kind of frugal people. They don't splash out a lot. So when she sees a Manet in her in-law, <laughs> she's, she's like, could that be a fake? No, that's not a fake. That's, that's the reason. I wish you would do like a slide. Maybe you already did this and I just didn't even see it anywhere or whatever, but like a, the, the art collection piece of it. And then I'll stop talking about the art, but it would be neat to see as a slideshow, right? Like put it on the well, website. I was just asked to do a list of the paintings, which was a lot of fun. Yeah, I did that. But of course, it, it's an important moment in the story that Salo steps out of his usual art collection to collect the work of one particular outsider artist. And that is a real artist named Achilles Rizzoli, who I revere, who has really not gotten a lot of attention, although he emerged at the beginning of outsider art, but his star has really not risen in the way that I thought it should have. So this is a real artist whose life and work I appropriated for my novel, because I can, because it's fiction. And Salo acquires this entire collection of this this real artist's work, and then it mysteriously disappears. And what happens to that is a very important part of the story. So So we'll just leave that with a dot, dot, dot. We'll just dangle that there. (laughs) Amazing. Does, I mean, I feel like everything, what is, what are the updates on film stuff with this and with the plot and everything else? Are there any more... Yeah, well, The Latecomer will be a television series, and that's pretty much all I know. It's going to be produced by two producers. One uh, is Bruna Papandrea, who is part of the team that did The Undoing. She's also produced Big Little Lies and ten, Nine Perfect Strangers, Nine or Ten Perfect Strangers, and also Jessica Knowles' book, the Luckiest Girl Alive, which I'm very excited to see, and a lot of other stuff. And the other producer is a woman named Kristen Campo, who will be producing the plot. So there's more to say about the plot. It's been announced that the protagonist of the plot, Jake, is going to be played by Mahershala Ali. And that will not start filming until next year. So that's that's all we got right now. It's, it's going to be at Hulu, that I know. So uh, yeah, incredibly exciting and I'm hoping to be part of the writing team for the plot, which is going to be a, an adventure. Uh, I've never written for screen before, so I expect to learn a lot. Amazing. 
Jean, this is so exciting. I mean, <laughs> like we met a couple of years ago and you're like, I've been working on these things and yeah, these have been films and you're just so like humble and yeah, like well, you know, just so self-deprecating. You know, it's just so nice oh that all God. these things are happening for you. Saying, don't do that. Don't do that. No, it's so great. And you still have your book, The Writer Series, where you're promoting other authors, which is so wonderful. This great literary citizenship. So I don't know. I'm so excited for you and I'm excited for oh, the latecomer. I love writers. Some of my best friends are writers. And this crazy thing that we do, you know, <laughs> sit in a room in our pajamas and put words on the page in the kind of weird expectation that somebody will read them one day. Well, somebody will take their precious time to open a book that we wrote and sit with it. It's it's a lot to ask of the universe for somebody to spend their time, you know, with your words. And it's just a, it, it's it's an incredibly generous act when people do that. But hey, I mean, you, you can't see what I'm looking at, but I'm looking at uh, not as pretty as your shelves because I'm alphabetical, not by color. But I mean, these are all the books that have meant something to me. And believe me, there are many more that didn't make the shelves. So I am grateful for every one of these books that I've read. And I guess it's part of our, part of the way we touch other people probably not the best way to put it, but <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm so grateful that I've been able to have this from other people and give this to other people. Very well said. All right. Well, Jean, thank you. Thank you for coming on. I was very honest with you that I have not finished this whole book and I am very excited to do so, but I'm glad I didn't postpone the interview because I wanted to talk to you about it. And I've already been recommending this front, right, and center to my Thanks. best girlfriends who I trade books with. And I anticipate this being a huge book this summer. So congratulations. I hope so. Thanks. Thanks, Sivy. Thanks, Jean. Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. If you like this podcast, you will love my new anthology called Moms Don't Have Time to Have Kids. Check it out, and you'll hear from 49 authors about all sorts of things moms don't have time to do. All the authors have been on this podcast. Also, check out my TikTok, at with Zibby and Tracy, my other podcast, Sex Talk with Zibby and Tracy. Check out Moms Don't Have Time to Write on Medium. And of course, my new publishing company called Zibby Books. And now back to our daily author interview site and a quick hello from some of my kids. Hi. Hi. Hello. Enjoy the show. Hi. 